You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our reading this afternoon comes from the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Romans. This morning we read the first number of verses from Romans chapter 5, noting that the Lord had carried out His justice in His own Son, Jesus Christ, that we might have comfort and joy. And we continue to read from Romans chapter 5, the verses 12 through 21. Here the Apostle Paul speaks about the relationship between Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ, the first Adam and the second Adam. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man... How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the, by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You can find that on page 521 of your book of praise. Page 521, Lord's Day 4. We continue there in the first part of the catechism, as you can see that begins on Lord's Day 2, entitled, Our Sin and Misery. Lord's Day 4. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No. For God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He's terribly displeased with our original sin, as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared, 
Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but He is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the Most High Majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we continue in the catechism. We come this afternoon to Lord's Day 4. We continue to hear these questions inquiring into our state of being. Questions that, as you can imagine, being in the first part, the part covering our sin and misery, expose that sin and misery. These questions also expose another thing for us that will hopefully be clear to us this afternoon. Lord's Day 4, to me, these questions, they read something like a lawyer presenting arguments on our behalf. A lawyer is someone you would hire, who knows law, has insights into the law, and can help you present your case, or can help to get to the judge, show the judge in the law where what you've done might not be actually condemnable or convictable of anything. Knows perhaps where there's a loophole in the law where you might be able to squeeze through. That's what a lawyer does. And it seems that's what this lawyer here is doing in Lord's Day 4. The first question we're asked, uh, the first question asks, doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? So the lawyer takes a look at at God's law and the current situation of mankind, which we heard about in Lord's Day 3. Unable, are we so corrupt that we're totally unable to do any good? Yes. Okay, well, the lawyer picks up on that and they want to follow that to see if there's not something wrong here. Perhaps we should get off the punishment that God's law speaks about. And then the second question, having the first one not work, having not have that work for them, they ask, okay, well, is this consistent then? If, if everyone is so bad, then they must deserve quite a terrible punishment. And the answer basically says yes. And then finally, we come to the third question. Our lawyer is perhaps running out of steam, but yet perhaps also knowledgeable of God. They know there's more to God than just his justice. And so they ask about his mercy. But as you know, we come to the last answer. We haven't heard any good news yet. And so this afternoon we'll consider that, well, it seems like we've hired a lawyer to do our job here. He is just not the right man on our side. We'll find that we need someone better to present our case before the Lord. And we see the arguments brought here in our points. First, surely this must be an injustice. That's the first question. Second one, surely this must be inconsistent. And finally, surely there is mercy. We'll see with all of those that what's needed is not the right argument, but the right man, the right advocate 
the right lawyer on our side. So first we come to the first question. Surely this is injustice. It must be a miscarriage of justice. Surely God, in giving his law, is not demanding something that man cannot do. You see, the question of whether or not we're being, we're able to keep the law, that's not even being asked here. That is settled in terms of the catechism, in terms of the questioner. It's already been thoroughly answered in the previous Lord's days, and it's thoroughly answered on the pages of Scripture. We cannot keep God's law perfectly. In fact, our depravity and corruption is total, so that we're all conceived and born in sin and unable to do any good, inclined to all evil, as we heard in Lord's Day 3. The question being asked then is not, are we actually able to do it? No, it's this. Okay, admittedly, we're all sinners. We're unable to keep God's law perfectly. We don't love God perfectly. We don't love our neighbor perfectly. But then, how is it possible that God would give us this impossible-to-keep law? That's the question. Is there something wrong with God's law or even with the God who gave it? Is God demanding us to do in His law what we cannot do? Is this like asking a child with dyslexia to win the can spell spelling bee? That would seem to be impossible. It is impossible. In fact, to, to demand them to do that would almost seem cruel. Is this what God is asking us to do? Well, no, the catechism answers, because the problem is not with the law, it's with mankind. You see, that's the basic thrust of the question. There seems to be something with God's law, and then perhaps even with God's justice from which the law comes. But this is getting things all backward, because, as the catechism explains in the beginning, God created man good. Last week we talked about the the hours in this part of the catechism. We shared in the fall of Adam and Eve. In the beginning, God created man good, perfectly able to live in harmony with God's ways and will. In the garden, there was hardly any need of a law. As Romans, as Paul points out in Romans 5, the law, the Ten Commandments, and all the other stipulations connected with it didn't come till much, much later. There was one law. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But mostly what was present for Adam and Eve was God's justice. God's justice in the Garden of Eden? What are you talking about? Well, God's justice for Adam and Eve was a terribly good thing for them as they lived in the Garden. Adam and Eve could enjoy the beauty of the justice of God. That is, the beauty that God would act in accordance with Himself. That God wouldn't change. God was God and He he had created the world and created them and put them in a garden. And they could trust that they could depend on God every day and God would not change. 
Everything that God promised, He would give to them. He wouldn't turn on them. He wasn't fickle. He was a just God. He acted in a way that was in accordance with Himself. And Himself is holy, righteous, unchanging. Their God, as ours, was not one that would change or exploit them or disregard them or withdraw from them. No, He would always be who He always was. That was God's justice operating in the Garden of Eden. But when Adam and Eve fell into sin, then God's justice, which didn't change, became frightening for them. That's why they hid from Him, because they knew His justice. They knew that He was unchanging, but they knew that they had changed. They had fallen into sin. Once perfect creations, they were now tarnished, distorted, broken images. But God couldn't change who He was. He was God, and His justice required that transgression of His law and rebellion of His majesty be punished with death. That is what, in administering His justice, He had told them in the garden. Something which, to them, before they fell into sin, was was reason for thanksgiving. But afterwards, it was frightening. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul teaches the connection between sin and death and the law. Adam sinned. Sin entered the world through one man. Yes, of course, Eve sinned too. Adam, as the head, was responsible. Sin entered the world through one man. The result of that sin was death. And the death that was resu- that resulted in terms of spiritual death, was immediate. Immediately, Adam and Eve were cut off from God. But this death was postponed in terms of their physical death. God did not immediately strike them down, and that was His mercy and grace operating. But the point is that the law, which came so long after the trespass, simply exposes sin for what it is. Sin is sin. Sin always is sin. Because the justice of God always is the justice of God. God doesn't change. And if you transgress His ways, that never changes either. Sin is sin. But the law reveals sin for what it is. The law, in fact, shows to us God's will. And therefore also shows us in what ways we transgress God's will. Sin is always an affront to God's justice. It's an act of rebellion deserving death. And therefore, God does not do man an injustice by requiring in His law what man cannot do. God would do man an injustice if He were to lower His standards in order to let man live in His fellowship. God is just. He cannot change His ways. And He created mankind perfect, perfectly able to obey His law. But we fell. Adam fell. Mankind fell. And so if God were to do an injustice today, it would be by lowering His standards, setting the bar lower so that sinners could enter into His fellowship. Now, do you think that would be a good thing? If God were to lower His standards, change His justice, We all like getting off the hook for something that we did wrong, don't we? 
boys and girls. You kind of like it when you get caught for lying. And even though your dad could punish you, you know that he could. He lets you off with just a warning. Don't do it again. You probably like that better than getting the punishment. And don't we all appreciate getting pulled over by a police officer? We don't appreciate that part, probably. But though we're certainly caught speeding, breaking the law, they let us go, or they lower the fine. They lower the standard for us of justice. Perhaps you think it would be better if God were to just let us off the hook. But for one thing, that's just not possible. That would be an injustice. If God were to let us off the hook for sin against the Most High Majesty of Himself, for capital treason, for rebellion, then He would be promoting injustice. And He cannot do that because justice is the pillar of His throne. Justice begins and ends with Him. It would be an injustice of God to do that. Plus, our crime is, simp- is not a speeding infraction. Something like that. It's capital treason. Our crime is murder. Our crime is adultery. Our crime is rebellion, stealing, and many other heinous crimes against God. And finally, another reason why it's not good for God to simply let us off the hook is that God's way is so much better. God is God. He is just. But He has made a way to carry out His justice and to receive us into His fellowship. The next question that we come to as our lawyer continues to work on our behalf here, which logically we come to, having had the first question, is perhaps a bit of a desperate attempt, but lawyers will do that if they have to. The question is, will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? In other words, okay, so if God truly is just, can't change who he is, then how could he possibly let this rebellion and murder, capital treason, how could he let it go? He must punish it. He must punish it severely. You see what the lawyer's doing there. It's not the tactic that's going to let us off the hook, but perhaps we can show an an injustice here that God is actually not punishing us properly. And so there's something wrong, again, with the law. And isn't there a kernel of truth here? Or doesn't it seem like this is the way that things go, that things go in this world? There are all sorts of people living in sin and apostasy. Why isn't God bringing them to justice? Doesn't He care? Why does He let all the, the sin against Him, the transgressions against His law, continue? day after day after day, here, in our lives, all around us, all over the globe. Well, the Catechism answers, God is not unjust in this way either. 
He's not aloof or dispassionate about the sin that's present in the world. In fact, we read, he is terribly displeased with our sin. And this includes, we read there, our original sin. Our original sin. That refers to our fallen nature. The sin that we share in just by being children of Adam. The sinfulness with which we're composed that clings to us. That's that's a part of us. That's the sin that David refers to in Psalm 51 when he says, Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Not consciously acting out in rebellion against God at that point. Not really able to do much as a newborn baby. But sinful. Born in sin. Born with the very same inclination that they they would have as a 50-year-old adult. That's our original sin. And flowing from that spoiled well of our original sin is the tainted water of actual sin. Since the roots are corrupt, the fruit is corrupt in our lives. Actual sins describes the, the, the actions, the things that we carry out that are in conflict with God's will and ways and invite God's justice. Our original sin breeds, you could say, actual sin in our lives. Terribly displeased. Another word that Scripture uses on several occasions that God uses in regards to the sin in the world is grieved. Grieved. That's such a frightening word. God is grieved. Genesis 6, it says God was grieved that He had made mankind. Hurt. Upset. The good God. The Father. Grieved. Of course. His good creation. Created in His own image. Responding to His glory and power and love with selfishness with false worship, with rejection, hatred. Because God is just, He's not only terribly displeased, but He also will punish these sins, both now and eternally. Sin leads to misery. Sinfulness or brokenness leads to misery in our lives. Very often, sinfulness, sinful actions will catch up to us. You lie, you get caught in a lie. It will lead to trouble. You're in school and you act out. You'll get disciplined. There are consequences in the moment for our sins. There are consequences five years down the road, ten years down the road for our sins. But our sins also continue to be punished. And not only simply when we die. Unrighteous person dies. But the punishment still awaits them. And that is in the final judgment. In the final judgment, God will finally and absolutely bring His punishment to bear against sins. As He has declared, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. 
So it's not a very pretty picture for us or for our lawyer, for that matter, arguing on our behalf. And finally, though, he comes back with something. This is perhaps a desperate attempt, but I kind of see it more as an ace in the hole, as that that argument that the lawyer knows is going to work, that they're just hanging on to. See if the other ones work, and then try this one. And so, seemingly nearly crushed under the weight of evidence, the lawyer changes tactics. God's justice is God's justice. It's impenetrable. But there is another part of God's character, which is as much a part of Him as His justice. And that's His mercy. Is God not also merciful? Yes, the catechism answers. Yes, God is indeed merciful. And what a wonderful answer is that. God is indeed merciful. There is a way out. But then this turn, this comma, the rest of the sentence. But He's also just. It's a disjunctive, hard turn. Catechism won't let us forget God's justice. It is His justice. God will not let us forget His justice. We ignore it to our peril. We disregard it to His dishonor. The point must be brought home. God's justice requires that sin against the Most High Majesty of God be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. There it is. We saw that same sort of finality in Lord's Day 3. The consequence of our fall into sin and our continuation in sin is that we cannot live with God. We cannot live with God in our sin. And here the consequence is drawn out more fully. What does that mean? It's not merely to live without God, but it's to live under God's eternal punishment of body and soul. Now, those words, body and soul, that's not meant to introduce some kind of dualism here. We are one. Body and soul, if you want to use those terms, are united. We are one. Actually, what this is trying to do is prevent anyone from having an escape clause. Sure, God might punish our body for eternity, but maybe our soul will be okay. Or maybe He'll punish our soul for eternity, but maybe our body will be okay. No. God punishes us. Body and soul. There's no escape from this punishment. Because God is just. And our lawyer is out of options. There's no recourse, no way out. God's justice is unchangeable and our sinfulness is an only too present reality. Now the problem isn't with God's justice. The problem is not with the diagnosis of our fallen condition. We haven't gotten that wrong. The problem here, we find out, is with our lawyer. It's not the right man for the job. You see, in a sense, this answer in 11 is all backwards. To say that God is indeed merciful, but He is also just, is not the way that Scripture puts it. It's put this way because we need to come to this reality. It needs to be brought home to us. God's just judgment. The way that Scripture puts it is that God is just, but He is also merciful. His mercy gets the last word. 
You see, God reveals to us an advocate, a lawyer, who is at the right hand of God, who knows the full extent of God's justice. In fact, he is, Scripture reveals, the judge. And he wouldn't have asked, like the first lawyer, if God was being unjust. He knows only too well that God is not being unjust. He himself created. And he intimately knew the first man and the first woman walking with him in the garden. Not only could he associate with the goodness of God's original creation, but he could associate with the fallenness of mankind after. In fact, he himself was born of a sinful woman. Born as a descendant of Adam himself. Born into this fallen world. He was like us in every respect, with one exception. He was without sin. He knows the justice of God. This advocate is deeply aware of the full extent of God's justice. In fact, that was why he became a man. This lawyer wouldn't question either the extent of God's displeasure and punishment against sin. He shares that same displeasure. He too is grieved at the sin of his of his people. Didn't he cry out to the people of Jerusalem, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Neither would he question the extent of God's punishment of body and soul. In fact, to ordain, uh, to, uh, to atone for sin, his body was racked with pain and shame and suffering, but the more extent, more profound extent of his suffering was endured by his spirit as his father abandoned him, rejected him, poured out his wrath on him. He knew, he had felt the extent to which God punished sin. And of course, he would never question the mercy of God. This lawyer is the very expression of God's mercy. God's mercy in the flesh is the reality of God's justice, which is unchanging. Is it overwhelming? Is it troubling? Then have the right man on your side. The man of God's own choosing. Without him, did you in your own strength confide? Your striving would be losing. But do you ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.